Welcome to FNT Bible Talk, where we're going through the Bible and showcasing God's glory through His unified story. I'm your host, Felix Birch. In this episode, we're going to talk about Numbers 1-18, through the arrangement of the camp, the presence of God, the twelve spies, and the rebellion of Korth. Hey guys, welcome to FNT Bible Talk. I first want to apologize for being slow on some of the episodes to come out. It has been a crazy last few weeks at the church, and with everything regarding the coronavirus and all the things going on and events, I want to apologize for being a bit slow on the episode. So I'm hoping this week I can get a couple out, and we can play catch up in the next week, and we can be back in line with the reading plan itself. But doing that, I do want to go ahead and start an episode today about the book of Numbers 1 through 18 in particular. And I know that we've already read Leviticus and we're jumping over that, but I'm doing that intentionally because what I want to do is I want to do Leviticus as a whole, one big episode on Leviticus, an overview of Leviticus. And so in order to do that, I want to first continue the story of the narrative of Numbers and the people of Israel, and then we'll go back to Leviticus and do an episode there. So first thing we want to talk about today is what is Numbers? What is going on here? And there's several things I want to say. The name of the book of Numbers, it's kind of like, okay, it's Numbers, right? It means to number things, and they're numbering. And the majority of the book really isn't about numbering. The very beginning of the book is, and so that's where we get its name from in the English. The name in the Hebrew actually means in the wilderness. So really what the story of Numbers is all about, it is about the people of God in the wilderness and their story there. And so if we just remember back what we've been reading and where we've come from, what has happened is that God had created this beautiful world that Adam and Eve were placed in. They sinned, they fell. God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that there would come one from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And that seed was through the man Abraham and then through his seed, and which has now led us to the people of Israel. And so Numbers is really just picking up that same story all along from Genesis 3.15, the story of the serpent crusher. And so what we see is that God has promised Israel the serpent crusher would come to them, and so we're just we're following that same storyline here. And so the book of Numbers is really just the continuing story of that and those people in the lineage of Abraham. Some of the things that I think is really impactful when we go through the book of Numbers that we're going to look at is that this is now a time where the people of God have been encamped at Mount Sinai for over a year. And I think we forget that a lot of times is that we think, you know, they were just at Mount Sinai for a couple days. No, they were there for a full year receiving the law of God, the rituals of God. That's where Leviticus was given. That's where the commandments were given. That's where they learned what it meant to be a priest and so forth. And so they've been in the presence of God at Mount Sinai for over a year, and the tabernacle has been there. But now the book of Numbers is them getting ready to set out and depart upon this. And before they do so, God is going to command them to do a census, to count the people. And that's where we get the name Numbers, or how we would look at it in English-wise. And so in chapter 1, really what you see is you see a numbering of the men from each tribe who are mustered for war. And so I want to make this clear here. The book of Numbers, Israel, is an army. Okay, They, they are to be looked at as a military force and an army. And honestly, they are to be looked at as a tool in the hands of God to bring judgment upon the Canaanites and these other nations that are going to be before them. And it continues in Joshua, who have sinned against God and have rebelled against God and their, their sin is full. Okay, They are committing a 
sins that are beyond our understanding in ways that we would be in horror of, even Americans today who sin would look at it and say, oh, be in, in, in all of that, right? And so God is going to use them as a military force to bring judgment upon the world, but he's also going to use them to go into the promise of God and to continue on the lineage of the serpent crusher. We see in chapter 1 there's this numbering, and then in chapter 2 there's this placement of the tribes around the tabernacle and how they're going to march and the order which they do. Chapter 3 focuses on where the Levites are going to be placed around the tabernacle, and that's actually really important and also a cool picture here. And then the numbers of the Levites and the firstborn of, of Israel. And then in chapter 4, we also see that the Levites are numbered in their tabernacle and their service unto the Lord. So this is really cool because let me read this to you here. It says in, in Numbers 2, 1 through 2, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard. With the banners of their father's houses, they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. And so I just want to rewind a little bit back to where we were in Exodus and some of the stories and details we heard there is that in Exodus what we found is that the people were to camp, right? And the presence of God is what was to define the people of God as being unique. And Moses even made the point that we cannot go forward without the presence of God in our lives. And so what we find here in Numbers is now God is saying, okay, this is true. I am what makes you distinct. I am what makes you special. It is my presence in your life that is going to make you this way. And so what he actually declares and commands the people to do is to camp all around the tabernacle or the tent of meeting on every side. So the way the camp would look is they'd be lined up. There'd be three to the north, three to the west, three to the south, and three to the east. And within the middle of that would be the tabernacle, and then the Levites would be camped around that. And so all the people of God would be camped around the tabernacle, and that at the center of the people was God's presence. I think it's a really powerful thing for us, even on our own lives for us to understand, is that God desired for them, for the, the presence of God to be the center of the Israelites' lives and everything they could look towards. And it's the same for us. God's presence ought to be the center of our lives. It should be where we focus, where it's, it's the very thing of our life, is that we focus on the presence of God as the center of everything. God's presence should be that valuable to us. What's also really neat about this is, is the way they're organized also speaks some pretty incredible stuff. But let me just say this too about the presence of God there. As, as it, the people were set up around the presence of God, we see the emphasis of their, in the way they're camped is about the presence of God. It isn't not, it's not necessarily um, emphasized about any other detail, but really that the biggest indicator here is that the presence of God was the priority here. The camp was set up in such a way that the presence of God would be the priority for all the people and that everybody could look and see where the presence of God was and that they could always look to the middle and know that's where God is. So the tabernacle was at the middle and the Levites were around it. And so it's a really beautiful and cool thing here because it shows them how they emphasize and valued God's presence for their life. And I think it should should challenge us to say, man, is God's presence the center of my life? Is my seeking God's presence in the Spirit of God, does that hold that value? I'm always wanting it to be at the very center of my heart and the center of my life. Another thing that's kind of neat about this, how the camp was set up, is that the presence of God, since it was at the center of the camp, it was also the most protected. 
they protected the presence of God. They did not want to lose the presence of God. It was a protection around it. And it's the same with our own lives. Do we value the presence of God? Well, we will not let it be taken out of our lives. We will not do something like we protect it with all our lives. Like, God, I want your presence. I don't want to lose it. So, Lord, let me value it in such a way that I would be around it. And I wouldn't let anything affect and take that away. I wouldn't let sin enter into my heart, into my life, so the presence of God would depart in that sense. Now, we know God will never leave us nor forsake us in this new covenant that we live in with Jesus. But it's true that we can vex the Spirit of God and the presence of God in a sense can depart from us in that way where we have vexed Him and offended Him. And so we need to live lives where we do not seek to vex the Spirit of God, but value the presence of God. And again, it's just important to see how the way the encampment was set up is that so that at the center of one's life, of the Israelites' lives, was that the presence of God was at the center of it all. And it's the same for us today. Let me explain to you some other really cool things regarding how the arrangement is really just a type of Christ. And so at the middle of this, and I've already said this, but let me just give it to you again. At the middle of the camp was the tabernacle. On each side, east, west, south, and north, there were three of the tribes that would camp. And at the center of all that was the tabernacle where the Levites would gather around it, okay? And so this is important. And, and their job was to guard the tabernacle and to stand between the people's sin and God's holiness or God's wrath, right? Because these were unclean people. These were people who were sinful. And so the Levites would be around it so that the people could not go into God's presence and die because God is holy. And so the only time they could come in was when the Lord had commanded them or the time of the year they would come into the tabernacle and the Levites and the priests would make sacrifices for them. But the Levites' job was to guard the tabernacle and to stand in between the people so the people would not feel the wrath of God, right? And so that's an important thing. But also another important thing is where Judah is listed in the arrangement. So Judah is the first one we see that's listed. And he's actually at the head, the east. So you have to remember the Israelites are traveling eastward towards the promised land. So Judah is the head, or Judah's tribe is the head of all the tribes. And the reason that is so is because if you remember back in Genesis, God had already told that Judah, the one that would come through Judah, would be the serpent crusher. And so Judah is the one who's marching orders or the one who would go forth and battle first. And this is a type of Christ here, as that is Judah would lead the troops out, in a sense, to battle and to crush the enemy. Jesus has led us out, and Jesus has led us and defeated principalities and powers. This is a beautiful thing. But what also is unique about this is where Judah was placed was the entrance to the tabernacle. And so just like Judah, the commands would come from the tabernacle and out to the tribe of Judah who would be the first to hear it. And then they would lead forward and all the tribes would follow in a sense. But what's unique about that is that just as the tabernacle is the center or the representation of the presence of God and Judah would lead out of that, Jesus who came from the tribe of Judah, did not just lead out of the presence of God and come from heaven onto earth, but he actually went into the presence of God. And he would allow people in now. And so where before, nobody could just freely access and go into the presence of God. Now Jesus has gone into the presence of God and made a way for all men to go to the center of the camp, the tabernacle, God's presence, by his sacrifice on the cross. His work on the cross was sufficient enough that now we could all enter into the middle of the camp. Where Judah charged out, Jesus now charges in. And everyone who follows through Jesus is now able to come into the presence of God. 
And so it's a beautiful picture just about how the camp is arranged where this tribe of Judah, where Jesus would come from, would be the charge outward, but also Jesus would fulfill that even more and become the charge inward into the presence of God and that we could gain access there by Jesus' death. But it's also neat about the Levites too. Because remember, the Levites fulfilled their duties of protecting the tent or the tabernacle, but also they were to protect the people from going in because they could die. And so the Levites acted as guards. But Jesus fulfills this even more so. So instead of the Levites forming a ring around the tabernacle where people could just not go in and die or be judged, Jesus, right, that Levites kind of in a sense would keep the wrath of God from being upon the people guarding the tabernacle. Jesus, not just guarding the people from the presence of God so that they would not die, Jesus actually took on the wrath of God and bore our sin and God's wrath so that now we could enter into communion with God. So where the Levites would gather around the tabernacle and keep people out, Jesus would go into the tabernacle, bear the wrath of God so that people could enter in to God's presence. And so it's amazing even just to see that how the, the camp was arranged. It's a type of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and how sufficient and beautiful he is. And so if you just jump with me, because really what happens is 1 through 10 is kind of like the meeting place or where the final instructions are given right before they depart because they're getting ready to depart from Mount Sinai to go to the promised land. And everything seems good. But in Numbers 9, 15-23, I think it's a really powerful section of Scripture here. And let me just read it to us. And it says, On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle and the tent of the testimony. At the evening, it was over the tabernacle, like the appearance of fire into morning. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from the tent, after the people of Israel set out and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the camp of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, and when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night where the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in the camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. And so I think this is a really cool picture. So this is right before they set out, but it's just giving us a picture, recapping everything of what they're doing. And I think this is neat here because everything we've learned about with the Israelites is what made them so unique and what was so important was God's presence. And it's the same with us. I, I, I cannot stress that enough. We have to be people of God's presence. And the beauty of it is that the Bible tells us in the New Covenant, the Spirit of God has been given to all men and been spread abroad over all of us now in Christ Jesus. And so we all do have the presence of God living in us. And that is what's going to make us distinct and unique and special. But it's the presence of God in this picture here that we see the people of God followed. 
You see, we are tempted that, yes, we have the Spirit of God living in us. We still can live by our own means or by our own ways. We can still choose to, instead of following the Spirit or the presence of God in our lives, we'll follow another path or another way that we deem is better or or makes more sense. But in this case, these people understood, or this is what they were to do, was that whatever God's presence led them, they were to go. It was God's presence that was going to bring them to, that was going to guide them and then lead them every step of the way. And this is the same thing for our own lives. Remember, at the very center of the camp was the presence of God. At the center of the camp was where God's people would know that's where God is. Right? And so every time they'd look above the tabernacle and they saw the cloud, they knew what to do. It was not a mystery for them to know what God was leading them to do. They just had to look and follow God. They just had to look and remember, oh, this is where He is taking us. They were guided by the actions of the presence of God. And it is the same for us today. We are guided by the presence of God. And all we have to do is look towards the Spirit of God and say, Oh, Holy Spirit, where are you going? He does not move in a way where He's trying to be a... uh, you know, a spy that we have to find, but he is our friend. He is our comforter. He is the one that Jesus has given us to lead us into all truth. And so we must follow and we must look towards the center where God must be at at our lives, at the center of our lives must be the presence of God and God himself. And we must look there and say, lead me, Spirit of God. And he will. It was at the command of the Lord that the people moved, and it was at the command of the Lord that the people camped. And this is the same for us. It is at the the Lord's command, the Lord's command that we go forward and that we stop. And I think this is even a good lesson for us today, what's going on with this, this coronavirus situation, is that we need to know what God wants to do. We need to know the command of the Lord. We do not need to know our own wisdom or what scientists and medical professionals say. Yes, that is important. I say we do listen to it. But most of all, the most important thing is this, what is the command of the Lord for my life? And God may tell us differently each person. We've established that. And if you listen to Lee's videos, he's taught well on that, on not attacking each other's faith, but helping people to live in the faith that God has given them to live in. But we must know what is the command of the Lord. And the only way we will know that is if we look towards the Spirit of God and look for His direction and His guidance and His moving in our life and where He's taking us. So we can learn several things from this. We can learn this. We must follow God's presence We must listen for God's presence, and we must obey God's command or His presence when He moves. But in order for all this to happen, is we must look for God's presence for any of these things to happen. We're not going to follow His presence, we're not going to listen to His presence, and we're not going to obey His commands if we're not looking for God's presence. So we must look to God's presence in our lives. Holy Spirit, I'm looking to you to lead me and guide me, and He will. The church must know what God is doing in this hour. We must know today, as as it would appear, and I believe that Jesus is coming soon. We don't have the time to just pretend like, oh, I don't need to hear what God wants right now. We can't afford that. We've got to know where God is leading. So we must look to the presence of God to be the center of our lives and to follow Him in every way. So moving forward into Numbers 13 and 14. And let me just say this. 
after 9, you go through 10, the people start to march. There's some complaints and some other things going on that we don't have time to cover. But we get to 13 and 14, and in chapters 13 and 14, this is such a familiar passage, and our pastor has taught us so faithfully on this passage over the last few years. But really what has happened is they've gotten to the edge of the promised land, and Moses sends 12 spies into the land to find out what's going on, and if the reports of the land are as good as they've heard. And they do so. So the spies go in, and then the spies come out. And when the spies come out, they give a report to all the people and to Moses what they saw. And what's interesting is the report they give, right? Nobody denies the facts. There's nobody that says, you know, this fact is true or this fact is not. But there's 12 spies, and 10 of the spies declare that, look, it is everything we thought it'd be. It is wonderful. It is, it is the promise of God that we thought it'd be, but we can't do it. They say, in fact, the word says, however, meaning like, but, you know, it's as good, but we can't do it. it. There's just too much opposition. There's too much great things in our way. But Caleb and Joshua, the other two spies who went in, they did not deny that report, but they never gave the however or the but or the rebuttal to obeying God's command. You see, the difference between these two, and you know this so well, is that some these two were of faith and those ten were not. They were of fear. They looked ahead and they were plagued by fear. I have said this so many times, but fear paralyzes people. It paralyzes them. And these people were paralyzed by their fear, looking at the promised land and seeing these giants and these great oppositions in these cities. They were paralyzed by it, and they would not move forward. And though Caleb and Joshua, who had great faith, tried to encourage the people, the people did not listen. And the people did not listen to Moses. And the people said, we can't do it. And so just like that, 10 spies out of a congregation of millions of people turned the tide where people who could have entered into God's rest or promise. And Hebrews even talks so much about these people, saying like, do not be like these people. Do not be people who turn back and do not believe God and do not take the promise of God by faith. And that's exactly what these people did. They did not have faith. And so even God tells Moses, these people have tempted me now 10 times. 10 times they've tempted me. And you know what? I'm going to give them what they want. And this is what they want. They don't want to go into the promised land. They don't want the promise I've given them. I've loved them. I've chosen them. I've redeemed them. I've purchased them for my own. But they don't want what I've given them. And so they're not going to enter in. Because of their lack of faith, they're not going to enter into the promise of God. And God says this. He says, from this point forward, this generation will not enter in, but anybody who's 20 and younger will. So 20 and over, those people will not enter in. They will not receive the promise. And I think it's important for us to understand, see here that God did not abandon His promise to Genesis 3.15 or to Abraham here. He didn't wipe away all of them, right? But He said this particular generation, their kids will get in, but they won't. So God was still faithful to His promise. But He punished this rebellious people because they did not live by faith. One of the things I heard um, our good friend Ross Kibido say, he was preaching a sermon along these lines, and he titled the sermon of Perspective. I think that was the title of it. And he was really just emphasizing how it was all about perspective. Two men's perspective was that God is able. They remembered the promises. They remembered God's power. They remembered His might. They remembered all He had done for them. And their perspective was God is able. 
versus these 10 men, their perspective was that this was greater than our God. And I want to even think about that for a moment. What obstacles in our life do we look at and say, man, it just can't be done. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're declaring this is greater than our God's power, our almighty God. Feel that for a moment. What things in our lives are we looking at and saying it's too powerful for our God? Because our faith isn't there. Oh, don't let us be like these Israelites. Don't let us be like them, but let us be like Joshua and Caleb, who had great faith and believed God for his promise. So Moses intercedes for the people after this. And it talks about how this is actually what God says to him in chapter 14, verse 11. It said, The Lord spoke to Moses, How long will these people despise me? How long will they not believe me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and dis- disinherit them, and I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. And I love what Moses responds, and it's just like we saw in Exodus, but it's the same kind of response. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people and your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. Isn't that awesome? Look, this is how he prays, is that, look, God, it's for your name, and you are in the midst of this people, you know, and, and you're great. So because you're great and you're in the midst of this people, keep them. And so he continues, For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, Is it because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them into the wilderness? And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. Saying, and, he's, and he's, he's, all he's doing is saying, God, remember what you said about yourself here. Verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the, the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And Moses is even acknowledging, look, God, you've forgiven them so many times. Would you do it again? And he prayed on the grounds of who God declared himself to be. And God responds and God says, I will pardon them. I will pardon because of your words. I just love how Moses prays to this because his prayer isn't so much like, God, we deserve it. He never acknowledged that they deserve anything. He agrees with God, but he wants God's name to be great. And I think that's a fair thing for us to pray today. It's like, God, would you have mercy on this world so that your name would be made great? Let let the world see that you're the answer to everything. Everything that's going on right now in this world, let the world see you're the answer to it. God, would your name be great through this? Would you be glorified through this? And use this as a, as a church. Use the, the church of the world um, to glorify your name and let the world see, as Egypt saw, that you were in the midst of the people of God, right? And so the people of God hear this judgment that God cast upon them that they're not going to enter into the presence or the first generation won't. And so they're angry and they try to go and take the land for themselves. They're like, wait a minute. Well, we didn't mean what we said, essentially. It's like, well, 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 we didn't mean it, but uh, uh, let's go forward. God told us to do this. God didn't tell them to do it. God had already told them to do it. He already crafted his judgment and they still tried to go. And they end in utter failure and defeat. And it's a, it's a terrible story. And the Israelites realize, we have failed. And they never enter into the promise because they were not people of faith, as Hebrew talks about. And so I pray that we realize, let us be people of faith. To close this episode, we're going to go to Numbers 16 and 15. 
which is a very unusual story, but it's an important story for us to understand some things in the Bible. And so what really happens here is there are three Levites who rebel against Moses in this place, and they're angry with Moses, and they feel like Moses has exalted himself above the people of God. But truthfully, their, their anger towards Moses really just shows their anger towards God. They were not happy with the way God had done things. They were not happy with the way God had orchestrated and led Moses because Moses had only done what God had told him to do. And even if you back up, there was a Sabbath breaker who was executed. And really, it kind of almost, the text almost makes it seem like they were upset with this. And so they were angry with Moses and they rebelled against Moses. And in the process, God, um, or 250 men rebelled along with them. And God brings judgment on these men. God judges their sin. He deals with them and he kills them. And what he does so is he swallows them up. The earth swallows them up and God deals with these men who have rebelled against Moses. And and, and there's several things we're going to learn here. But one of the biggest things is that God does punish sin. When men sin, God is going to punish it. And he's already said that about himself multiple times, that he does not let sin go unpunished. And these men were in open rebellion, and they were sinning against God. And truthfully, this is the condition of all of mankind. But what happens is in chapter 17 is that the congregation actually joins along with them, and essentially the rebellion spreads. And in this case, a great plague is spread through the camp. And this plague begins to kill people, and people are dying And what happens is Moses tells Aaron, you know, run into the camp with your censer to make atonement for the people. And so Aaron runs into the midst of the camp and he stood before the living and the dead, the scripture says, and the plague stopped. But it killed 14,700 lives before the plague had finished. And what we can learn from this story is several things. And There's a lot of things, but I'm only going to bring up two. Is that number one, sinning against God is a serious thing. And those who sin, they do deserve death. I think sometimes we don't, and maybe it's because we live in this covenant of grace, and praise God we do, but I think sometimes we don't understand the magnitude of sinning against a holy God. And I think maybe that could be what God is doing today in the earth, is that God is trying to draw people to Him and show them we have sinned against Him. And God is trying to make people awake to their sin against God and to bring people to repentance. In fact, I know He's trying to bring people to repentance because God doesn't just want to judge sin. He doesn't find that fun to do, but He wants to bring men to repentance. And so in this case, we can know that sinning against God is a serious thing. The Bible, in fact, tells us that it leads to death. Sin leads to death. And so we must not make light of sin or light of our own sin, but we must understand sin is a great evil thing in the earth. And that we must be vessels of God to go and where sin abounds and where sin reigns, we must bring grace and we must bring repentance and we must go and tell people, repent now. Because there's a plague going around, which is sin, that is consuming people and killing them and leading them to eternal damnation. And then the second thing I think we see in this text that's pretty amazing is that God does provide a way out of the punishment. Though these people deserved punishment, Moses, once again, through intercession with Aaron and and a picture of Jesus, intercedes for the people, and Aaron goes and does what he's supposed to do. You see, Aaron's job was the high priest, and the high priest's job was to make intercession for the people. And in this particular case, he does exactly what God had instructed him to be and do, was a high priest of intercession, and he runs into the people 
with his censer and saves the people, dividing the living and the dead. He saves them. And y'all, this is Jesus Christ. We deserve death. But like Aaron, Jesus has run into the midst of us sinners so that we could be saved from the plague of sin. And there are people in the world right now who are being destroyed by the plague of sin because sin is real. The judgment of sin is justice. It must be judged. And so men are dying in their sin and sin has attacked and sin has come upon people. But Jesus has run and he ran into the world from heaven. The word actually says that he dwelled with men, meaning he became a tabernacle with men. And in that, he brought salvation to the world, like Aaron who ran into the midst of this plague with a censer to bring life. Jesus ran into this earth to die on a cross so that we might have life. But the beauty of it today is that this is the job now for the church. Jesus has won the salvation. Jesus has won redemption. But we are the messengers and the ambassadors of that work of Jesus Christ. We now too are priests unto God like Aaron was a priest. We are not the high priest, says Jesus, but we are priests unto God. And we get to go and tell the world about what Jesus has done. And we are living in a day where there is, if we're being honest, there is this virus that is going around that is killing people and That virus is called the coronavirus, but truthfully, really the true virus is this virus of sin that is killing people. And we can be like Aaron and run into the midst of this world, of this dying people, and hold the censer up and hold the word of God up and the message of reconciliation up before the people and declare to them, be saved, turn unto Jesus. And we're living in an hour we have to do this. We cannot afford to live as Christians and be silent. Christ is coming back, and it's too soon, and we must. So I beg you, church, be a messenger of Jesus in this hour. Realize that sin is for real. It is serious, and it is going to be judged. But God has provided a way that punishment, though we deserved it, God has provided a way of intercession through Jesus Christ to be redeemed and saved, just as Aaron did. But we are the messengers of that. And so in this hour is a great hour for God. Let us declare the goodness of God, the salvation of God, and the mercy of God to everyone we can. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope it blessed you. I hope it encouraged you and challenged you. And I hope to have another episode coming out this very week. So stay tuned. Love you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. For more FNT Bible Talk, be sure to subscribe and visit fntchurch.org for more information.